<laughs> okay. Uh, we are moving on in our study of Genesis into chapter 21. And uh, we... Uh, Uh, last week we were uh, doing about the last half or so of chapter 20 and we were talking about the story of Abraham in Gerar and the, and the whole situation there with Abimelech. And, uh, and today we, want, we really kind of reach a, a climax in the story of Abraham and we'll... Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Uh, and we... Uh, uh, we'll get into that in a, in a minute, but first let's let's just kind of go back and, and uh, as we leave the story of Abimelech there in chapter twenty, what do you remember that we talked about there in uh, in that uh, lesson we looked at last week? Guess I better move over here a little bit. Yeah, I know some of you were here. Excuse me? Okay, okay. So we talked some about what was it exactly that Abimelech did that was wrong. Clearly, uh, God preserved him or kept him from, from uh, the worst possible offense, which would have been, uh, of course, to actually have uh, committed adultery with Sarah. But uh, but he still was at fault. He was at fault for having taken a, a woman against her will, uh, and uh, and he was at fault for things that he thought and things that he desired in his heart that weren't holy and weren't good. And so, so he was not without blame. What else? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, and yeah, yeah. What did we conclude from that? Okay, let me say that. What did I conclude from that? <laughs> I don't want to obligate you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there is some way, isn't there, that they obviously identified with the sins of the nations and, and, and took some sense of responsibility and culpability upon themselves. And, 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 you know, and as I said last week, I admit I don't fully understand how all that works, but I think it's very clear that we have two very godly men there who who very clearly understood that. And, and of course, we, we got there from looking at Abimelech, who really sensed that, that, that the sin which he personally had committed had, a, had some kind of bearing or reflection upon all of his kingdom. And all of his kingdom was going to be suffering the consequences or the results of his sin. And so we talked about national sin and we talked about uh, our role in, in, uh, in a sense, mediating and praying and, and confessing the sins of the nation uh, that we live in. So, what else? Mm-hmm. 
Abraham uh, prejudged this area with his own fear of God. Yeah. Yeah. And it made a mess out of things, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was a bad assumption. It was a wrong assumption that even though these people were not believers, it's clear that there was some fear of God and, and, and that's reflected in their conduct. And, and Abraham's prejudging, the modern word for it is prejudice, <laughs> Adam's, or Abraham's prejudice uh, led to this whole ugly scenario and situation. And so we talked about prejudice and, and how we have prejudice in all kinds of areas of life. Typically, we think of prejudice related to racial areas, and that is an area that, that we wrestle with and we struggle with in our lives. Uh, but there are all kinds of other areas, and we see here a case of, of Abraham who's struggling with another area of, of prejudice. And we see the devastating effect that occurs when we, when we assume things about people just because of where they live or how they look or how they sound or, or by any other external measure when we don't really know the true circumstances. So it's a real warning about prejudice in our lives. What else? Okay. Okay. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's a, yeah. 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 That's true. That's a very good point. Yeah. We didn't we didn't bring that out last week. So thanks for mentioning that. So. Every time that Abraham has done this with his wife, he's left the country yeah he makes a haul off the deal you know it's no wonder he never learns his lesson <laughs> that doesn't usually work for me when I sin I usually <laughs> I don't usually end up with my pockets full of cash <laughs> yeah 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 89 at this point yeah 89 at this point yeah she must not have been too bad yeah yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're gonna say something, Rick? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that that was a that was a uh, a uh, distinction. I believe it was uh, I believe it was Bruce Walk he makes in his commentary, and uh, and I think that's a valid distinction because because all of us know people in our lives who are not believers but but still generally operate their lives with some kind of general sense of morality and right and wrong and fear of God, even though they're not believers. But that's a far cry from the fear of the Lord that Proverbs talks about as being the beginning of wisdom. So, Okay. Well, and then at the end, we talked a little bit, and I don't know how many of you remember this because we, we were getting close to the end at this point, but we talked a little bit about Abraham's intercession and how Abimelech had to come to Abraham and, and ask Abraham to intercede for him, to pray for him and for his, for his kingdom because of this sin and the consequences of this sin that they had indulged in. Uh, what was the lesson from that? Or a lesson from that that we drew? What, what, is, the, what is the irony there? 
Okay. Yeah. It's 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 just it's really provocative to me. It's it's thought provoking to me that that God asks Abraham, who at this point yet is still without a child and his wife is still barren, to pray for these pagans that they would bear fruit, that they would be fruitful. And and I'm thinking you know, I'm sure Abraham, in a sense, was glad to do that because God wanted him to do it and, and, and he'd been the one who'd created part of the problem here and so I'm sure he was glad to do it. But my, there had to be some some pang of irony in that for Abraham to be, for him who is barren to pray, uh, for he whose wife is barren to pray that that these others who are barren would bear fruit and uh, and be fruitful. and. And, and actually, it, it just came up again in, in something I was wrestling with yesterday. And I, and I thought, how oftentimes in our lives, as blessing bearers, God asks us to do things that are really difficult to do and really stretch us. And sometimes maybe even seem unfair when we have to treat people in ways that they've not treated us. You know, when we have to turn the other cheek because we are blessing bearers, because we have a responsibility like Abraham to carry the blessing to others. So, so there's just, I think, a tremendous irony and potency in that lesson of Abraham being placed in the position of interceding for Abimelech and for his kingdom. So, Okay, well, we're going to go on into chapter 21 now. And in one sense, we're reaching a climax of the story, which is not really the climax, as we'll see as we go on. But... Um, let's just read the first seven or eight verses and then, uh, and then I'll give you some introductory thoughts and we'll get into it. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. Laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in my old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Okay? Well, we've been waiting for this for a long time, haven't we? (laughs) I went back and looked in my notes, and we... In our study of Genesis, we actually started this study of Abraham on December 13th. <laughs> so we've been we've been building to this verse, uh, verse two. We've been building to verse two uh, for about six or seven months. Okay, we've been working on this for a long time. Uh, Abraham worked on it for a little longer. <laughs> he worked on it for 25 years longer, actually, because it's because he's been married for obviously many, many years before that. But 
but this really is in a very in a very real sense kind of the climax of of this whole story of Abraham and we've taken obviously a long time to to cover this 25 years in the life of Abraham we've we've taken uh, uh, like I said, six or seven months to talk about it. The, the scriptures themselves have taken nine chapters. We started clear back there at the end of chapter 11, the first part of chapter 12, and we've walked all the way through chapter 20, and we have covered now about 25 years in the life of Abraham. We've just taken our time thinking about it. Now we hit chapter 21, and the speed of things accelerates dramatically. So that in the next, while in the last nine chapters we've covered 25 years, in the next three chapters we're going to cover 37 years. So we're going to speed things up considerably. So, so the the point the point I'm trying to make from that is that is that the Lord obviously wanted us to really think about this whole 25 year period in the life of Abraham. He wanted us to take time and contemplate that and let let the reality of those 25 years be absorbed into our psyche and into our understanding uh, and into our appreciation of Abraham and Sarah and everything that they've gone through. But what's interesting to me is after this nine-chapter build-up, we come now to this final climactic event, which, as I'll point out in a minute, isn't really fully climactic, but this climactic event, and it's just almost passed off as a sidelight. He takes less time telling us about the birth of Isaac, the climax of the covenant promise, than he took to tell us about this whole fiasco with Abimelech. And it's just, you know, well, the child is born and he's named and he's circumcised and Sarah says a couple things about him and then we're on to other things. And, and that in itself is instructive to me because... While in one sense it really is climatic, unless we have this event, you know, we can't go anywhere else. You know, this is kind of the end of things if we don't have this. While that is true, really in the story of Abraham, the climatic event is not going to come here in his tent in Gerar. But the climatic event is going to come on Moriah. Okay? That's where the final ultimate test of Abraham's faith is going to come. And, and also, that's really where the, the theological implications of Abraham's life become so graphically clear to us. It will be at Moriah. It's not here. Okay. So this is a profound event in the life of Abraham and Sarah, and we do want to take a day here to really contemplate and think about it. But my point is, there's even a greater climax yet to come as we move on from here and ultimately end up on the mountain of Moriah. Okay. But not only that, I think one reason why the Lord doesn't spend a lot of time on this is because in one sense, while it is climatic in the life of Abraham and Sarah, it's only the beginning for us. This is just the start. Okay. And, and the story is just getting started. And when you think about it, we're only in chapter 21 of over a thousand chapters of this story. So it really is only the beginning and we can't spend too much time here because there's so much more to tell in this whole story of redemption and we're just getting started here in Genesis. Okay. So those are just some, some, some things to think about it because if you, if you read this passage, you go, is that all you're going to say? <laughs> you know, 
We have much more said about the birth of other people in Scripture, particularly the birth of the Messiah, we have, which of course is understandable, but we, you know, we have descriptions of the circumstances and where it happened and what people were thinking and what people were doing. And we don't have any of that here. It's just almost a, a statement, just a mere statement of fact with a few comments from Sarah. So uh, those are some of the things that to think about as we go forward. Now, I want you to notice that there are that because there are because this is such a is in, in still a, a real sense a climatic event, there are several themes which come together in these eight verses. And uh, and they are and they are kind of woven together through these verses. And you'll pick these things up by the repetition of certain words, okay? So there are particularly five that I see and and for the rest of our time together this morning I'd like to talk about those five themes. But the first theme, uh, I'll just listen to you and then we'll take them one at a time and go through them. The first theme is the theme of Sarah. Okay. The second one is the theme of God's word or God's promise or God's command. The role of God's word in this whole event Okay, that's being described to us. The third theme is the idea of, of sonship. The idea of Isaac is Abraham's son and Abraham has a son. That's repeated to us over and over again in this passage. Okay. The idea of laughter is a theme in the passage. It's actually kind of a theme of Isaac's life, okay? Uh, which is why he's named the way he's named. And then the third or the final theme, the fifth theme that uh, I want to talk about as we have time today is the theme of impossibility and incongruity. Okay. Uh, so those are the things that's kind of an outline of where we're going today. So the first theme is the theme of Sarah. And this is really interesting to me how many times Sarah is mentioned by name in these eight verses. Five times her name is used specifically and then once, of course, she's referred to with the personal pronoun. But in verse one, her name, specifically her name, Sarah, is mentioned twice. Uh, that God visited her and that God did certain things for her. Okay, uh, then she her name again is mentioned in verse two as the one who was conceived and bore a son. In verse uh, three, uh, it's emphasized. Notice how it says Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. Is this? It's very clear that the narrator here, the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses, is is trying to emphasize, this is Sarah, folks. We're talking about Sarah here. I want you to think about Sarah, okay? So Sarah is a theme throughout this whole passage. And then, again, down, of course, in verse 6, uh, Sarah's name is mentioned again, and, 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 and we are given these... Uh, very uh, these brief words, but very powerful words that she speaks in verse six and verse seven. So this first theme uh, is this idea of Sarah. And, and what's significant about this is that in these last nine chapters, these last 25 years, you've probably noticed, particularly if you're a woman, you've probably noticed that Sarah's kind of seems kind of incidental to the story. You notice that? She's kind of there in the background, but this story is really about Abraham. Okay? This is Abraham's story and Abraham's faith and Abraham's struggles and Abraham's victories and Abraham's relationships. And so, over and over again throughout this story, we've, 
we've talked about Abraham and Sarah's just kind of been pretty much incidental. Now, there are a couple exceptions to that. Of course, uh, one obvious exception is in chapter uh, 16 and the whole situation with Hagar. And, and that in that story there, of course, Sarah comes to the forefront. And then briefly again in chapter 18, when the Lord is visiting with Abraham there at his tent before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, once again, Sarah kind of comes to the forefront of the story just briefly for a, two, a few verses. And, and, and then we move on. But, but in large measure, for the last nine chapters, for the last 25 years, Sarah has been behind the scenes. She's kind of backstage. She's behind the curtain. And we're aware of her. But the most significant thing that we think about when we think about Sarah as we're going through this story is that she's a problem for Abraham because she's barren. And it repeats that to us over and over again. It reminds us she's barren, she's barren, she's barren. So, so she's back there. She's behind the scenes, but she's, she's kind of the unspoken problem here. Okay. She's barren. She's back there. And now we come to chapter 21. And the Holy Spirit takes this woman who all this time has been largely kind of incidental to the story and he brings her and he just puts her right out in front. And he makes her the story. Only briefly, but just so powerfully. And what struck me was, as, as I remembered about that verse we've talked about several times in the last number of weeks in Hebrews 11, where it says that by faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive. Then we realize that here is this woman who is, has seemed to us to be kind of incidental to the story. And it seemed to us to have kind of been behind the curtain backstage, you know, just kind of out of sight, out of mind for most of the story. What we discover is that what was not only what was what was crucial to this story and what's crucial to the unfolding story of redemption here is not just the faith of Abraham, but it's the faith of Sarah. You know, we probably often have thought, what if Abraham hadn't believed God? What if Abraham hadn't trusted God? Where would you and I be today if Abraham had not trusted God? If Abraham had not believed God? But now we discover because of the way the Holy Spirit brings Sarah to our foref- to the forefront of the story here and puts her right in front of her and focuses on her is we as we are forced forced to recognize that we face the same question about Sarah. Where would we be had Sarah not believed God? Where would we believe if Sarah had not walked with God? Where would we be if Sarah had not been this fantastic woman of faith she'd been. And oftentimes that aspect of her life is is obscured to us because we see some of the problems. We see the problem with Hagar that develops and it, it makes us, you know, sometimes kind of think that Sarah was not maybe as faithful as she should have been. But as we get into the New Testament and we see the New Testament description of her, we understand she really was a great woman of faith. And she walked with her husband through all these difficult 25 years. And she trusted God. And she walked with God. 
And, and that is so particularly poignant to me and powerful to me because most of us live our lives in the shadows, don't we? You know, they're the big name people and they're the important people and they're the, the influential Christians, you know, and they're the big name Christians. And we think about them and we think about how important their lives are for the work of God. And how important it is that they walk with God and how important it is that they trust God and how important it is that they not give up because they're important and the work of God rests on their shoulders. And if they stumble and they fall, what would the consequences be? And we think about them. But it's often easy, I think, for us to think that that our faith isn't quite as important and our walk with God isn't quite as important. We're just people of the shadows. We're the little people, to use the expression of the BP executive that got in such trouble for calling the people of Louisiana little people. But I tell you what, we are, and most of us are little people, aren't we? We're not the big names and we're not the influential leaders. Most of us operate most of our lives, if not all of our lives, behind the curtain of 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 the real drama of what God is doing. We're backstage. But all that time that Sarah was backstage, her faith was crucial. And we could not come to verse 2 of chapter 21 had it not been for the enduring faith of a woman who was behind the scenes for most of the story. And I shudder to think what would have happened had Sarah given up. And when I think about that and I think what what aspects of the work of God are resting on my shoulders? What aspect, aspects of the work of God that God is doing in the world, this unfolding story of redemption, rests on your shoulders? And you may be behind the scenes and you may be obscure and and and, and you may never have a single verse in the Bible written about you. But the importance of you continuing to persevere and walk by faith and trust God, if it takes 25 years, if it takes 30 years, if it takes 40 years, however long it takes for you to realize the work of God in and through your life, will you be faithful like Sarah was faithful? So it really is significant to me that Sarah kind of at this point steps even briefly again, steps forward into this drama, this center stage thing. And for just a brief moment, the spotlight is on her. And and I think the spotlight is on her in part to tell us those of us who are Sarah's and we all are the importance of walking with the Lord. And we can think, well, you know, so-and-so, they're important, it's important they walk with God. But, you know, if I get a little slack in my life, if I get a little slack in my devotional life, if I get a little slack in my holiness and what I do in, 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 in my day-to-day life, if I get a little slack when I'm in front of the computer, if I get a little slack when there's an opportunity to share Christ and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I disregard that opportunity, it doesn't matter because I'm just a little person. And I'm just behind the scenes. 
I'm glad Sarah didn't do that. Because I am saved today. I am saved today because Sarah walked by faith. And so are you. Well, so that's one thing. Then another thing that jumps out to us because it's just repeated over and over again is this is this theme of the role of God's Word in this story. Okay? You'll notice he says in verse 1, Then the Lord took note of Sarah. What? As he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And then down in verse 4, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. So, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that as we reach the climax of this story, He's, he's trying to tell us some things about, about God and God's Word. And, and one of the things He wants us to understand is the absolute certainty of what God says. Things God came and and took note of Sarah. It says there. If you got a New American, it says uh, he took note of her. I think that's kind of an unfortunate translation. I don't like it. Uh, the New International says he was gracious to Sarah. I don't like that translation either. The King James and the Amer- and the English Standard Version uh, translated he visited Sarah. Okay, and. And I like that because that's really what the word means. Okay. And the reason I think that's the right translation is because it coincides with exactly what God said he would do back in chapter 17 and chapter 18. Back in chapter 17, when he was talking to Abraham as they were instituting the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And then later in chapter 18, when God came to Abraham there at his tent before he went on down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and he has that interaction with Abraham and, and both in chapter 17, when he tells Abraham he's going to have a son and, and Abraham laughs at him, God says, no, I'm going to come to you next year at this time and you'll have a son. And then when he gets to chapter 18 and he, and he has that interaction, and Sarah laughs there in the tent and, uh, and the Lord says, why did you laugh or whatever? And, and then she denies laughing, of course. But, but he, says, he says, I'm going to come. And when I come, you're going to have a son. Okay. So it's this, this promise of a visitation from God, okay? which is why I think that the, the accurate translation there is that the Lord visited Sarah just as he had said, just as he said back in chapter 17 to Abraham and just as he had said to Abraham and to Sarah there at the tent uh, uh, there uh, by the Oaks of Memory, uh, he, he had promised that he would visit and now he has visited Okay, and the idea there is is not necessarily that he was that there was some kind of visible manifestation like there was at the tent, or a visible manifestation like there was in uh, uh, there in chapter 17 at the at the sealing of the covenant, but but is this it is the idea that God comes and acts 
in our lives. It can be both a positive and negative. Sometimes God's visitation is a visitation of judgment. You'll see that in other places in Scripture. But oftentimes it is, as it is here, a visitation of grace and a visitation of redemption and a visitation of salvation. And this is what we have in this case. God has come to Sarah just as He said He would come to her. And God has done for Sarah exactly what He promised that He would do. Now, let's go back to some things we talked about a long time ago as we were moving through our story of Abraham. Is what does the promise of God do to our reality? As we talked, you remember, we talked about what Abraham's reality was. Abraham's reality was that he was a nomad after he left Haran. He was a nomad. He was wandering around. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't own any land. Okay. And, and he was childless. His wife was barren. He had no son. This was Abraham's reality. And then he comes, uh, and he comes into the land of Canaan. And when he arrives there in the land of Canaan at Shechem, then God comes to him and he speaks to him and he shows him all this land. And he says, I'm going to give you all this land. And eventually he tells him that he's going to have all these descendants. And remember when we talked about that and, and at other times as we've talked about Abraham's story, we've talked about the fact that when the promise of God comes, it changes our reality. Okay? Abraham's reality was one thing before he went to Canaan. But when he got to Canaan, he got the promise of God. And even though for 25 more years he has no son, and for all of his life, he never actually receives the land. Abraham's reality is altered by the promise of God. But for most of his life, his changed reality is only a promise. It's a changed reality, but experientially, he doesn't have it, right? Well, now, for the first time in Abraham's life, that changed reality becomes tangible. Not fully, because he still doesn't have the land. He doesn't have the full realization of the promise. But he has this. He has a son. And then we discover something about reality and the promise of God. And it's this. That when God says something, it's as absolutely as real as the day it happens. So, Abraham's reality of being the father of an heir and, and, and uh, the father of, a, of the one who would be the second blessing bearer, that reality he, he really received when God promised it to him. But he didn't have it tangibly in his life for 25 more years. And that's something about God's Word and God's promise to us that we need to get a hold of. Is that when God says it, it's reality. Even if we don't, can't touch it. Now, there are a lot of promises in God's Word that we need to go back and think about in those terms. Okay? But just to kind of help kind of put things in perspective here a little bit, Remember how long and how many times 
over a long period of time, God had said He was going to send a Messiah. You know, I'm going to send a Messiah and He's going to come and He's going to do this and He's going to do that. And, you know, and there's all these prophecies in the Old Testament. And there were many people of faith who, who listened to those promises of the coming Messiah and they believed them, but they were so far off and they were so unimaginable that it was almost, they believed it, but it's almost like it's not really real. Right? But there came a day, a night, in Judea, in Bethlehem, about 5 B.C., when all those promises suddenly became tangible reality. Can you imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph and those shepherds in that squalid little inn? That little con where they were holed up with Jesus lying in a manger and realizing that all those promises of long ago are now actually... I can reach out and touch it. They are reality. And it's, to me, it's mind-boggling to realize after all... And even in their own years, that you know, Joseph and Mary had waited so long and they'd heard all those promises, you know, and, you know but to them, it was so far off and it was so unimaginable. It was so hard to, 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 to get a handle on it like it's really going to happen. I want to tell you something. It's going to be the same way with the second coming of Christ. It's so unimaginable to us now, isn't it? It's almost like a fairy tale to us, isn't it? But there is going to be a day, just like in the day of Abraham and Sarah, when it finally becomes a tangible experience to them, it's going to be a tangible experience to us. It's absolutely certain. Just as when God said to Abraham that very first time, I'm going to give you a son, it was an accomplished fact, even though Abraham had to wait 25 more years for it. And we may have to wait a long time before we look the Lord in the eyes and see Him rule in power and majesty over this earth. But there's going to be a day it's going to happen and we're going to go, this is real. This is really happening. And you're going to be experiencing it as much reality as you're experiencing sitting in this room right now. And you're going, I can't believe this is happening to me. But it's actually happening. Before my very eyes, all of this is happening. Well, that's just one of the promises of God that we can think about that in, in that regard. Well... The next theme that comes up that I want to talk about is this idea of sonship. And you'll notice that that also is mentioned repeatedly uh, in, in the passage. In verse 2, uh, Isaac is talked about as the son, uh, a son is given to Abraham. In verse 3, he talks about naming his son. In verse 4, he circumcises his son. In verse 5, he gets a son at a hundred years. Uh, in verse 7, he talks about a son again in his old age. And so, it's like, it's like he's saying, Son, 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 Abraham, son, Abraham, son, son, Abraham, son, son, Abraham, 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 son, son. Why are you doing that? 
Because for a hundred years you couldn't say that about Abraham. Not this way. Now, Abraham did have a son before this, didn't he? And Scripture calls him his son. And as we'll see next week, when we get into the verse next week, God calls Ishmael Abraham's son. But Ishmael is the son of Abraham's flesh. And Isaac is the son of Abraham's faith. And there's a world of difference there. So when we think of Ishmael, what do we think of it? Well, we think of compromise. We think of ambiguities. We think of confusion. We think of conflict. And we have all these questions that arise. We can't figure out. How does Ishmael fit into all of this? And even though it spells it out for us in Scripture in black and white, it's still confusing to us. Why? Because that's the nature of what we give birth to by the flesh. When I try to do the works of God by the flesh, this is what I get. I get Ishmael. I get confusion. I get ambiguity. I get conflict. That's the nature of what the flesh produces. But when we come to Isaac, there's none of that. When we come to Isaac, it's just, he's his son. 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 Five times. He's his son. Now, Ishmael is his son, but he doesn't stress it like that. Because Isaac is the product of faith. And so with Isaac... There's none of the ambiguity. There's none of the uncertainty. There's none of the confusion that comes from what we produce by the flesh. There's a purity and a simplicity and a goodness and a wholesomeness that comes from what we produce by walking by faith. And so this guy, Abraham, who... For all these years of his life, you could never say, here's a guy who's got an heir. Now you can say, Abraham has an heir. I mean, even after Ishmael was born, he didn't have an heir because God made it very clear. He's not going to be your heir. So he didn't have an heir. Now he has an heir. And that's really important. Because if if Abraham doesn't have an heir... This whole redemptive plan just shuts down right there. 2,000 years B.C. So it's absolutely vital that there be an heir. It's absolutely vital that when Abraham passes off the scene, that there be a second blessing bearer. And Isaac is that second blessing bearer. He is the heir of the promise. He is the one through whom that covenant will be carried out. And so the Scripture wants us to understand that. And so it emphasizes Isaac is his son. Isaac is his son. Isaac is his son. Well, the next subject, the next theme that comes out in the passage is the one of laughter. Okay? And 
and I, and I tried to point that out to you as I read the passage, because Isaac's name is the Hebrew word laughter. Okay? So just put it in a modern context. Your son is born, and you call him laughter. I don't know if any of you would do that to your son, <laughs> but Abraham did it to his son. Why did Abraham do it to his son? Yeah, it's what God told him to do. God said, clear back in chapter eight, uh, 17, he says, when your son is born, I want to, 17 or 18, I forget which chapter it is, but he tells him, when he's born, you call him Isaac. You call him laughter. So, this word laughter comes up again five times in the passage. Uh, uh, in uh, verse 3, uh, he calls him, he uh Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son laughter when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Uh, then Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears it will laugh with me. Uh, and then uh, down in verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made great feast on the day that laughter was weaned. So, here we have a guy named Laughter. Now, there are actually uh, several reasons for this. And, and one is, there, there, there's kind of a theme or an idea of laughter associated with Isaac himself. In that when God first, in chapter 17, uh, not first, but when he talked to Abraham there at the uh, covenant of circumcision about his son coming, uh, Abraham laughed. Right? And as I said, when we were in chapter 17, I don't think that was a laugh of incredulity. I think that was a laugh of surprise, and etc. Although you may differ with me on that. That's up to you. But then we get to chapter 18 and Sarah hears about it and Sarah laughs. And I think it's pretty clear from the context there that Sarah's laugh is a laughter of incredulity. And then we get here to chapter 21 and there's all this talk about laughter and Sarah laughing, etc. And then as we go on in chapter 21, we're going to encounter uh, Ishmael uh, at the weaning feast and Ishmael at the weaning feast is mocking or laughing. Okay, So there's both positive and negative aspects of laughter, but it's all associated with Isaac. Okay, So with Isaac, there's the laughter of incredulity, there's the laughter of joy and the laughter of pleasure and the laughter of a fulfilled promise, and then there's the laughter of mocking. And as Paul says in Galatians 4, the laughing of persecution as he was as Isaac was persecuted by his older brother. Uh, that's how Paul describes the, the incident we're going to look at next week. So there's different kinds of laughter, but it really is a theme of Isaac's life. But I was thinking about this, and you know, I'm no study of humor, and, and you can probably tell that when I try and tell a joke. I'm not very good at it. But I like I like humor and I like a good joke and most of us do, you know. And have you ever asked yourself why do we laugh at a joke? You know, what, what is it about a joke that makes us laugh? You know, some people do studies of those kinds of things. Oh, that, that's got to be a pretty boring study is to figure out what makes people laugh. But but it is kind of interesting uh, some of the things that go into making a joke a joke. Okay. And uh, I was trying to refresh my mind on this again this morning a little bit on some of the. Uh, thoughts on this. I went and had to get on the internet and do a little bit of look fishing around. And, but but one of the things that one of the 
things you do when you're telling a joke to get people to laugh. You know, what is it that makes people laugh at the end of the end of the joke? What do you what do you give at the end of the joke that makes people laugh? So it's the punchline, okay? And so there's a there's something at the end of the joke that just kind of turns the story all of a sudden, right? The story's going along in this nice predictable pattern and then all of a sudden there's this weird little twist to it, right? And you laugh, usually, you know. And and so that's one of the elements of a joke is this is this pattern that you begin to expect, okay, it's going to be like so and so, you know. And we even have kind of genres of joke, or we have kind of kind of traditional jokes like the guy walks into a bar, okay? Now how many different guys walked into a bar jokes have you heard? You know? Heard hundreds of them. What well, because when I say a guy walks into a bar, immediately the pattern is established. I don't have to spend five minutes establishing the pattern. The pattern's established. You've heard a hundred of these jokes. So you've already got the pattern, okay? And you, you know, he gets up there and he gets to the bartender and, t- and then whatever happens. I'm not going to try to tell a joke here, so don't worry. Uh, but then all of a sudden there's a sudden twist and we all laugh. This is what's happened here. We've spent six months building a pattern. And we come now and suddenly it's all reversed. It's all changed. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. And Sarah's laughing. 90-year-old lady laughing. And then she says, notice this, all who hear it will what? Laugh with me. Are you laughing this morning? You just heard it, didn't you? Are you laughing? You know, I think I think Sarah was being a little overly optimistic here because I really don't think Hagar was laughing. <laughs> and there are probably some other people who don't laugh at this story. But boy, I tell you, there's something wrong with us if we don't. And I wonder sometimes... Like in this case, if we don't laugh when we get to this part of the story, there's, what's wrong? Well, I think one of our problems is sometimes when we approach Scripture is we read these stories. And many of us have grown up in the church, so we're very familiar with these stories. We've heard them all our lives. And now these, these biblical characters have become to us, they're kind of like automatons or robots, right? They're just these kind of spiritual critters. And yeah, They've got problems and they've got foils and they've, they've got sins, but that's just part of what's programmed into them as robots, you know. And they just kind of robotic, robotically go through the story in our mind, whether we're reading about, uh, about David and, the, and Goliath or we're reading about Zacchaeus in the tree or, you know, or, or we're reading about Peter in prison. You know, it's just we just read these stories and we've heard them so often. And one of the things we need to do And one of the reasons I love teaching the historical books, the Gospels, Acts, Genesis, the reason I love these is because it gives me an opportunity, it gives us an opportunity to go back to these stories that have become just second nature to us that we just kind of read through and go, oh yeah, now I remember when Saul did this and, and, and I've read this so many times before. It gives us an opportunity to go back and say, God, let me feel what these people feel. 
God transform these people from a robot to somebody with real flesh and bones. Help me understand, God, what they were struggling with. Help me understand what they were feeling. Because it's only when we it's only when we feel Sarah's pain, it's only when we feel Sarah's struggle, it's only when we feel Sarah's doubts, it's only when we feel Sarah's isolation, it's only when we feel those things that we get to this that chapter and we laugh. If we haven't felt the other things, we won't laugh when we come here. It'll just be more data for us. But what we need to understand, and James struggles with this. James struggles with this when he's trying to teach us about prayer in his book. What does he say in, in, in the epistle of James? He's trying to tell us about prayer. and He's trying to tell us that we can make a difference in prayer. What does he do? He talks about Elijah. And what does he tell us about Elijah? Elijah was what? A man what? With a nature like ours. Saying, you look at Elijah and you just think, oh, here's this great guy back here and he prayed and God sent the rain and, you know, etc. Et Let me tell you about Elijah. He had a nature just like you. What's he saying? He's saying, if Elijah can do it, you can do it. That's what James is saying. And that's the issue here for us. Is Sarah just another biblical character and we just read her story and we go on? Or do we come to this point because we have been so moved by Sarah's struggle and by what Sarah's experienced and all that Sarah's gone through and we're so moved by it that we come to this point and we laugh? Because it really is funny, folks. And it's really happy. Have you ever thought about a 90-year-old woman nursing a baby? Now, that made you laugh, didn't it? It made Sarah laugh. I'll tell you something else I think she laughed about. I think in those painful nights in the middle of the night when she had to get up and nurse that baby at 90 years of age. You know, you see her get her up, get her cane, and, you know, go over there and get her baby. And, you know, I'm exaggerating here, but she gets that child and she puts that child up to her breast and she sits there in the dark of the night on the floor of her tent. And she looks down in those babies' eyes and she knows that the blessing that was given to her husband is now being passed into this child and will indeed be passed on to all the nations. And I can see Sarah there sitting on the carpet there in her tent in the middle of the night all alone, just her and this little laughter and laughing at the thought of all the nations being blessed through this little infant in her arms. Well, the last theme, and I'll just take a moment on it and, and we'll quit. The last theme is this theme of impossibility and incongruity. Sarah says there in her, in her remarks, she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? What is she saying there? She's saying, this thing is incomprehensible. This thing is unimaginable. Nobody would have ever said this to Abraham. It's stupid. It's ludicrous. Why would anybody say such a silly thing to Abraham? That's why she laughed in the door of the tent. Because this is a stupid thing to say. Who would have ever said it? She says, yeah, here I am. 
bearing him a son in his old age. And what God is trying to point out to us here, and there have been repeated references to his old age throughout the passage, and the point is, this is an impossibility, folks. I want you to understand that Sarah's conception of Isaac was not just unusual, it was miraculous. Now, I said several weeks ago, perhaps as miraculous as the virgin birth. Well, probably not that miraculous, but certainly profoundly miraculous. What happened was an impossibility. But what we learn in this story is those promises of God, those things he tells us, which to us seem so utterly impossible, are not impossible. And those things which are so utterly unthinkable, unthinkable, those things which are so unthinkable that no sane person would ever really say it, really are thinkable. Because with God, those things are possible. So those are just five of the things we learn as we go through this story. Next week, we'll go on and we'll talk about the conflict then between Ishmael and Isaac and who is going to end up being Abraham's heir. Okay? Okay.